Welcome to Autoimmune Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Justin Janoska, clinician and founder of the Autoimmune Revolution. After watching my mom suffer with autoimmune disease, I have made it my mission and purpose to help people like you. Unlock the door to better results, regain control of your body, and feel like yourself again. I want you to become an autoimmune alchemist and get your life back. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. May you be filled today with joy, abundance, and loving kindness. Peace and love. The isolation and missed opportunities for human connection kill us long before we die. Go find them. And that was what I was reflecting on this morning. And it's such an important thing to remember because a lot of people suffer for years with illnesses and chronic pain and uh, all these complicated diseases, right? And maybe you're one of them. And for reasons we can understand, we are not able to show up and connect with others, right? We lose our human element and, and our ability to uh, build those important connections. But that's actually the thing, the missing ingredient, the thing that we need to try to find if we're going to improve our health and recover from illness to the best of our ability. But I hope that really resonates with you and you keep that in the forefront of your mind because it's really important to find that because if we don't have that and we're isolated and alone, especially when we're suffering with disease, then it's going to make for a very, very difficult recovery process. So today I want to welcome you to Autoimmune Revolution Radio if this is your first time listening. And I'm really excited for today's episode because we're going to get into a lot of stuff. And actually, I'm going to keep this as brief as possible and try to combine a bunch of different elements. This concept of if you look for something, you you will probably find it. And I was thinking about this the other day, about how it's so common in functional medicine for us to look for the mold, the parasite, the virus, and heavy metals, and do all this uh, testing. Not to say that you're doing that on your own, but with a qualified practitioner or a doctor. And a lot of times people come back positive. And there's such a, a misunderstanding with this. And this is really the overarching idea that I wanted to cover today about if you look for something, there's a great chance you're going to find it. But that does not mean that it is a problem for you or that you must be delegated to treatment for it. And this is very much evident with Epstein-Barr virus, other herpes viruses, mold, especially heavy metals, especially my mom actually did some heavy metal testing earlier this year, had some you know slightly elevated metals. And I didn't run the test, her doctor did, um, because she was curious about exploring it and he had those similar thoughts. and. I never bothered to test that with her because I, I never suspected that. But uh, nonetheless, we did it and she came back, you know, kind of high for, for, I think, mercury and a few other things. And yeah, sure. That's a good uh, indication of we should probably, you know, do some uh, chelation therapy and get it out of the system. But the reality is that we're all exposed to, uh, to metals and we all will at some point. It's kind of inevitable. If you test if you do a blood test for it you're gonna find it i'll find it in myself too if i test 
but that does not mean it's an issue for you. And that was the thing I was saying to my mom is that she was not seeing any improvement after six months of chelation therapy and protocols. And I asked her, like, mom, what do you see? Any difference in your symptoms? She's like, no, nothing. And I said that maybe it wasn't an issue at all. And we just chose to make it an issue. And I'm not hitting or knocking on her doctor or anybody, but it's one of these issues that I have because I think we try to find ish, uh, find explanations for people's problems and uh, our biases get in the way because if we are a doctor or a practitioner or if I personally had an issue with metals or mold, then I might say, hey, we should, with every client I work with, I might say, hey, we should test for this because I have this sort of tendency, this inclination to test for this specific root issue. And because of the of how common it is to find it in labs, we automatically think, oh, that's an issue. We got to treat it right away. It's a problem. It's causing X, Y, Z. It's much more uh, involved and complicated. And this is really why I wanted to have this uh, do this episode, because we need to understand that just because, again, something comes back positive does not automatically assume it is an issue. All right. And so I intentionally selected Epstein-Barr virus, mold, and Lyme because these are, and metals would even fit into this, but I'm going to discuss these three things briefly because these are prime examples of how we can get stuck into this belief that we are dealing with these issues and these are the root issues for our symptoms that we can't explain or our autoimmune disease or what have you, when really it may not be at all. It may not be an issue and we're just making it an issue. And this is, again, my biggest gripe with the alternative medicine space. It doesn't mean that it's not and that it can't be. Of course, it is for many, many people. But we have to be really careful and do our due diligence. Because if we don't, we could unfortunately get people to believe that they have this problem and they're treating it, spending all this time and money, not getting answers. And then they're frustrated by the lack of results and improvement. And then they're scratching their head thinking, well, what do I do now? And then I end up with a lot of people who come to me have done every testing under the sun and can't figure out what's wrong with them because they did these protocols and for positive findings they you know purportedly had and and in my head I, I look at their stuff and their history and I'm like I don't think this was your issue in the first place and it's really uh, unfortunate and I'm sorry if this has been your experience but this is why I want to talk about these things and to be fair, each of these deserves its own podcast episode because there's so much to know and to talk about with this. And even I don't know everything with mold and lime and metals and these things, but um, I have some knowledge I would like to impart with this so we can understand the nuances with these tests and how to interpret it. Okay. So let's start off with mold. And this is like the hot thing these days. I think everyone's, uh, I feel like everyone's saying they have a mold problem and that they have to test their house for mold and do this, do this ermy test and check the, the dust and the air. And, you know, it's positive a lot of the times and guess what? Yes. It's a lot of times it is because mold is everywhere. It's part of the, the ecology, the, the um, the ecological system that we're involved with and live in har- harmony with. Okay. Mold is everywhere. And the issue is, of course, not um, really the mold itself at all. It's actually our body's immune response to it. And that's why maybe roughly 25% of the population have real mycotoxicity issues due to certain gene, uh, genetics like HLA-DRB, HG, I'm sorry, DQ haplotypes, I believe. Um, 
anyway, certain genetic um, polymorphisms, you might say, that make it hard for people to clear mycotoxins from the body. So they activate and drive the immune response. And the symptoms are from the immune response. Okay. But in large, most people don't have issues, statistically speaking, to mold. But it seems like nowadays, if you're in the health space, everyone has a mold problem, you know? And again, that's not true at all. So when there is obviously humidity changes and moisture and, and flooding, these sort of things you've heard about, mold uh, can prosper. They multiply into mold colonies. They release these spores. And on the spores are these mycotoxins, which can be, which are chemicals that can really be uh, really irritants to the immune system, of course. And then we have to look at this in the context of symptoms, right? Because symptoms with mold illness overlap with a lot of other things, right? Fatigue, confusion, sleep issues, brain fog, headaches, joint pain, muscle pain, respiratory issues, and light sensitivity and GI issues and, you know, dysautonomia maybe and anxiety and vertigo, the list goes on. So we have to really um, tease this out and see, you know, what's going on with this. So there is a difference between mold allergies versus toxicity, by the way. Okay. Very few people I've worked with uh, in my history have true mold allergies, which is an IgE mediated immune response, like it is for food, you might say. Like you've had a food allergy in your life, you would know what this is. You have food allergies to peanuts and uh, maybe seafood and uh, these sort of things. And this can happen with mold. And this is a sort of program immune response that if you have a sensitivity to mold and you react this way with an IgE immune response, it's primed to turn on B cells, make antibodies. Uh, and no matter what you do, you're going to get, if you get exposed, uh, you're going to have a reaction. It's just kind of, unfortunately, the thing that you have to deal with for life. No matter how well you treat the body and give it this and that, it's not really going to do a whole lot. Uh, I could be wrong with that, but that's been my experience with clients, people I talk to still with past clients who are still reacting if they're in the wrong place uh, at the wrong time. But just because you are allergic to mold, okay, now I want to make this really clear. Just because you're allergic to mold doesn't mean you have toxic levels of mold, okay? And conversely, uh, just because you have high levels of mycotoxins doesn't mean you have an, a mold issue or mold toxicity, okay? This is the biggest thing I want to hammer home because a lot of people nowadays are running mycotoxin tests with the urine and there's other ways of testing. It's not just the urine, but that's the hot thing these days. And the reality is you really can't make a diagnosis of mold illness from a urine test. I run these all the time with clients, but I take it with a big grain of salt because most of the time, I would say 80% or more of the time, they come back positive with some evidence of mycotoxins. But that doesn't mean they have an issue with mold. But a lot of times I've had people come to me after they're told from their practitioner previously that they have a mold issue and they have to treat it and they do the treatment and then nothing changes and they feel exactly the same. And this is why it's really frustrating for me to see this because if you've been through this, you know exactly what it's like. And it's not good, good use of your time, money, or energy. But it's, it's because we have to get a better understanding of what is actually going on. Okay, okay. 
everyone's again exposed to mycotoxins these days it can pass through the body cause no issues and you pee it out and this is why it's on the test doesn't mean you're building a immune response towards it to the point where it's creating these unfavorable symptoms because if it was creating uh an aggressive immune response you would be having you would be having symptoms okay and for me a lot of times the giveaway is is candida fungus issues and other sort of subjective questions of like, well, how do you feel on rainy days? And, you know, like, like with my mom, for example, she definitely had a mold issue and we never really explored that before, but she would feel worse at work. She would have headaches and all these sort of allergy like symptoms. And at home, she would not. And they did a, uh, I think they did a air test or, or dust sampling, the nerve test, and they found it. So she had to move and work from home and things changed. So that that's kind of how, you know, you have to kind of, explore and ask these sort of questions so you can make an appropriate assessment. But again, doing that by itself would not be enough. Neither would be running a urine test or any test for that matter. Many healthy people have mycotoxins in their urine. So just because there's evidence of it doesn't mean you have a mold illness. I just want to say that again. Okay. Another sort of um, important reminder here is that many people don't show up with mycotoxins in their urine and they may be really sick towards mold because they don't have enough of the nutrients or uh, detox capacities to excrete it. So on the other end of the spectrum, that can happen too. People have a false negative and they really do have mold issues and symptoms will, will reveal that and they will notice how they feel and how it changes based on where they're located and um, what places they're in. So some studies, I think, I, if I remember correctly, have talked about, have discussed and shown how people can uh, come back with a positive finding on the test if they reduce their mycotoxin load in the home or the air and it, it support their detoxification capacity, which is why I usually like to do a sort of challenge with people and I'll say, hey, do you know sauna therapy, take glutathione twice a day to help get the, you know, the gears turning so that when you run this test, you have it you have a higher chance of excreting this stuff. And if you've been stressed, you've a lot of this going on in your life, a lot of other um, stressors, obviously, then this can happen and people come back with a false negative. Okay. So it's tricky. You have to really explore and leave no stone left unturned. So that's, again, one of the reasons why we have to be careful with what we're talking about with mold, because it's not um, I, I think, you know, personally, I think that my opinion is that we are maybe over diagnosing it a little bit or we're we're convincing people a little too much that there's a mold issue that they have. And, and it's just very, uh, very much a myopic perspective, if you ask me. So moving on to Epstein-Barr virus. And this is another one that's very, uh, very much a common virus, herpes virus that 95% roughly of the population has this, okay? It's not even a question about if you have it or not, in my opinion. It's about is it activated, is it reactivated or not? And people will run this test uh, that their doctor will run and they'll say, oh, yeah, you have Epstein-Barr, it's positive, blah, blah, blah. And yes, that's true because of past infection, okay? And the one question you can ask is simply, have you had mono in your life, mononucleosis? And if you have, then you have had exposure to Epstein-Barr virus. So the issue, again, isn't, oh, I'm positive for, for Epstein-Barr, and what do I do about it? Because honestly, there's, there isn't a lot you can do. <laughs> I mean, it's a virus that 
we can't really get rid of and antivirals are not very effective. And if you were to do anything with this, uh, use the, using those sort of tools and interventions, it would probably be most effective when it's out of its latent stage and it's in its lytic stage, it's active and reactivated. Okay, that's a different discussion, but that's one of the issues with it and why I don't bother with it because unless it's activated, I'm not going to really say much. There's nothing you can really do, unfortunately. And this is kind of what's been discussed amongst other peers of mine and people who are, who are much more well-versed with this virus. And so the issue, again, is stress. Usually increased levels of cortisol and, and adrenaline, um, norepinephrine are indicators of acute infection and reactivation a lot of times. They can drive that. And this has been studied cortisol and epinephrine can reactivate Epstein-Barr in vitro. So um, when the when the virus is in its latent stage, they can come out of hibernation, essentially, with chronic stress. And when it's in its uh, lytic stage of replication, it basically causes, it's called lytic because of uh, the word lysis, which means rupture. So the cells rupture that it's inhabiting. And then 200 or so viruses burst out of the, of the cell and go and affect more cells. And then you have more symptoms and a more, um, more aggressive immune responses. And this is where you get a lot of malaise and body aches and all these symptoms that um, are indications of Epstein-Barr virus reactivation. So in people who are immunosuppressed or have immunodeficiency issues, this is really the, the big underlying problem and why Epstein-Barr virus becomes an issue and how it can continuously reactivate and increase the viral load in the body and create, you know, at, at an extreme um, end of the spectrum can be a risk factor for malignancy and autoimmune disease, of course, which we know is very much uh, correlated with Epstein-Barr. But when you look at labs, I'm going to really briefly cover this so that when you look at Epstein-Barr related biomarkers, you got to understand this a little bit and your doctor may not run these all, may not run all of them. And when I look at labs, I see some of these being missed, but just for an edification, there is a difference between these different biomarkers. So for example, there is viral capsid antigen VCA and there's IgM and there's IgG. And IgM is pretty much positive when there is an acute infection. So when you first got, uh, when you first got the virus in your life, and then you eventually or may not have gotten mono, that IgM was elevated and it drops pretty much after about a month or so. Okay. So we can put push that one aside. The viral capsid antigen IgG peaks at about two to four weeks after exposure and it stays chronically elevated. So this is why when you run these antibodies, you're going to see a positive finding and that's because it's gonna. It's because the virus already affected your system, and it's already built an immune response towards it. But it doesn't shut off, so that doesn't mean it's an issue now. It just means that you had it then, and it's keeping it at bay. All right. So that doesn't mean it's a current problem, which is why we can't rely on that biomarker, and it's why it's not helpful to kind of get anxious and frantic about it because that's not the issue. It doesn't mean it's an issue. And I get to what is. So EBNA, Epstein-Barr nuclear antigen, IgG, is an antibody that appears about 
about four to six weeks and is a sign of past infection. And it's also also chronically elevated. So again, you can basically bank on the fact that EBNA, IgG, and VCA, IgG are chronically elevated for life. And that's not the issue if you see that positive. The issue is if early antigen or EA is elevated. That indicates acute infection, reactivation generally. Um, but, you know, honestly, in, in for a small percentage of the population, it can, it can be elevated for life. But generally, in my experience, when I see that elevated, it means as there's reactivation. It's in its lytic stage and causing problems. That is the one to look for. If you're looking at the rest and making a decision around whether or not Epstein-Barr is a problem or not, off of VCA or EBNA, it's not helpful. And it's probably going to be very misleading. So this is why you have to look at early antigen. The, the, the real big clues of reactivation, though, if I'm being honest, is a positive early antigen, of course, VCA, IgM, but VCA, IgG, that is maybe three to four times the normal limit. I picked that up from a clinician once. So it's, it's a really high amount, like high level. So it's got to be like three or four times higher than the normal limit. It doesn't mean that you have reactivation, but it really does imply that to me, especially with a positive early antigen. Okay. So keep that in mind because if we're not doing this, we can't, we're going to start running around trying to figure out how to address this, this Epstein-Barr uh, issue when maybe there is no issue at all. And then the stress around doing this sort of stuff <laughs> maybe causes the reactivation for all we know. We wouldn't want that, would we? See what I mean? This is why, again, I say this all the time. It's like my favorite tagline is that the stress about the food, the toxic, the metal, whatever it is that you may or may not have is probably a bigger issue than the root issue itself, if we're not careful. All right, so closing up here on Lyme disease, and this is even more complicated and involved, and honestly, I've kind of deviated from this because of how complex it is, and don't really work with it anymore because you need a lot of uh, expertise with this and pharmaceuticals and drugs generally that I can't prescribe. So uh, generally, you need a lot of uh, conventional medicine approaches and alternative herbal medicine approaches too. But that's beyond the scope of this discussion today. But what I want to talk about again, of course, is how we can get, we can fall into the trap thinking that we have a Lyme disease, uh, an issue with Lyme disease when maybe we don't. And this is because of how complicated testing is and how there is no, I'm going to say it right now, there is no one Lyme test. People say to me all the time, I ran this Lyme test. I don't have it, or I ran this test and I do have it based off XYZ criteria and evidence. And I just say, okay, I understand. I hear you. Well, let's look at maybe other tests and your symptoms and your history and all these other things. We have to consider all that. Okay. Just because you have, and this might be really shocking, but just because you have had exposure to Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the, the infection itself that causes Lyme and there's others, of course, other, other, you know, sub, uh, variations of Borrelia that, uh, a hundred, a hundred or plus. So, I mean, it's, it's wild how many are there, but if any of these things, um, are actually an issue, you're, you may not even notice it on a test. Okay. And like I was about to say, just because you've been exposed to it does not mean you have Lyme disease. This is such a big misbelief. 
um, again, it, it kind of goes with the whole Epstein Barr thing, how you can have exposure and it doesn't automatically imply and assume you have a disease or an illness. And that's uh, quite relieving, I think, because again, we can kind of create these stories, these narratives that we have a disease that isn't really backed by the evidence. The Western blot is the kind of the, the standard go-to for doctors and conventional doctors are not trained in Lyme disease really. So this is why you're not going to get a lot of answers from them. And you have to really um, find a, a Lyme literate physician or practitioner. And it's very hard to see, find those these days. I don't know many myself, but like they're, they're out there, but there are <laughs> very uh, few, there seem to be few and far between, let's put it that way. And so because of that, we kind of get the opinion or expertise from a doctor who says you need to treat with this one drug or this test says you have this disease and you may not. And it doesn't mean they're wrong, but there's a lot of room for errors here. So the Western blot is an indirect test and it's, it's not a complete test at all because it's not testing all the bands or the proteins on the Borrelia itself. Okay. And I didn't mention this, but Borrelia is, is the spirochete that creates this whole phenomenon. And there are so many other types of it. There's Borrelia, um, Miyamotai, and I can't even pronounce half of them anyway, but there's a lot of other ones. And Western blot only looks at one and there's maybe a hundred plus. So this is why we can miss potential Lyme disease. And it's, it's a whole political thing, I think as well. And, and how the testing is so limited, but Western blot is not enough. You really need a multi-panel approach, which means you need to run, um, other forms of tests that look at using different methodologies. And that's, again, a, a more complicated discussion for another time. But you need a multi-panel approach. You need to try different tests to rule it out or in. Another sort of confusing issue that can happen too is how you can have a false negative, meaning you're told that on the lab you don't have uh, exposure to Borrelia. And that's not true at all. You just have not built any antibodies against those uh, species because maybe it's too early. You need some time. So after you get infected, for example, I, I have a client right now actually who we suspect has uh, Lyme because of her symptoms. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but like joint pain, neck pain, back pain, joint stiffness, joint swelling, GI issues, muscle pain, like fibromyalgia-like symptoms, sciatica, um, what else? Dysuria, painful urination, in other words. These sort of things are big clues a lot of times for Lyme. It makes me think in that direction doesn't mean it's going to be that. So with my client, I saw that based off of her recent trip to Michigan and she was in the woods for like literally two hours, but she, her whole symptom profile changed when she got back. So I, so I thought, and I said, you know what, we should probably rule this out. We're running this multi-panel uh, test for her to rule this in or out. My guess is she's got it because it, it came all of a sudden and I could be wrong, but this is why we do this um, and not just one test like a Western blot. But what I was trying to say is you can be exposed. And if you test too early, you'll come back negative because you, your body needs time to build an immune response to make antibodies. It, it can take several weeks actually. So that's why I always like to give it a, you know, three or four weeks or so before we even test anything. If we suspect you have Lyme. Now, if you've been infected for a long time and you've had symptoms for a long time, then I would probably go right ahead and, and test for it. But again, what, I, what I'm trying to also remind you is that positive antibodies does not mean you have a current infection. You can be exposed to Borrelia and other organisms and 
your body can handle it pretty well. It's not causing any issues, right? Lyme disease is an issue where you have exposure, but you're also creating a response. It's causing debilitating symptoms. All right, so I'm going to cut it there for today. And I just wanted to drop in and kind of spit fire these different facts and, and uh, <laughs> insights about these common root issues that are really uh, prevalent in the chronic illness disease space, especially the autoimmune world. So I hope you found this helpful. And in the future, I will probably go into more into more depth with each of these, including heavy metals, parasites, and more on mold and Epstein-Barr and Lyme disease. So I hope you found this helpful, but uh, please reach out to me. If you have any questions, you can find me on Instagram at Justin Janoska, of course. You can email me, justin at theautoimmunerevolution.com. And please leave me a, a review. Leave me some comments. Let me know how you think about this. And I would greatly appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Peace and love to you. I will see you next time.